0: Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment, using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse,
1: functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Welcome to today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. I'm Deborah Beaumont, and I'm your host. Today's episode is brought to you by Beyond Breast Cancer Navigating the New Normal and Reclaiming Your Health and Vitality post-treatment. This is a group program that I am currently enrolling for, which is actually going to talk about and look at breast cancer recovery from not only a functional medicine perspective and understanding the physiology and what's going on in cancer diagnosis, but really give you some information to understand treatment options and to really navigate that with as much information as possible. I found in my own recovery and in Working with so many women that after treatment ends, official treatment, surgery, chemo, and radiation, that there's often a letdown. Uh, It's a time where your medical support sometimes becomes much less frequent or non existent, and yet you still have to make some really important decisions. There isn't often a lot of information to help you make those decisions other than what your doctor is prescribing for you in terms of a prescription. And as we all know, these prescriptions are pretty powerful, and we need to have information to know. Navigate those decisions. But more importantly, it's also a time where I think some really challenging emotions come up and there really is a gap in terms of understanding and support. And that's what really prompted me to want to put this group together is to bring together women who are all dealing with this in, in one level or another and really have a supportive community. Really look at ways that we can take care of ourselves uh, emotionally and physically. And I'm really excited about the group. I hope it's something that you're interested in checking out. And if you have questions or wonder if the group might be the right fit for you, please feel free to contact me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. And we can set up a time and just talk about it and see if it's a fit for you or I could answer your questions. So with that being said, I'd like to go ahead and introduce today's guest, which is a woman that I have spoken with on several occasions. And she's just always very informative. And it's really lovely to talk to her. Miriam Kalamian is a nutrition consultant, an educator, an author, and a sought after speaker in the area of the ketogenic diet and the therapeutic use of the keto diet. And I really wanted to talk to her today because ketogenic diet is something that's brought up frequently in terms of cancer and cancer treatment. There are some very specific therapeutic benefits from it. But I I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about ketogenic diet and what it is and how you do it and its benefit in cancer. And I just think that there's no one better able to talk about that than Miriam. Her expertise and knowledge about the ketogenic diet actually came from an intensely personal experience in her life in 2004 her son Rafi was diagnosed with brain cancer of very aggressive form. She'll tell you more about it during the interview but just to give you a little bit of information, it was through that process of initially pursuing medical treatments, the treatments were not only uh, failing Rafi, but in some ways making his quality of life much worse. So as she was trying to find answers and trying to get as much information as possible, she came across the work of Dr. Thomas Seafried, who has done research about the metabolic process of cancer. And that became very informative for her and how she approached Rafi's care. After implementing a ketogenic diet, his symptoms went into a rest and he had a period of time after just three months where his tumor stopped growing. That became a turning point for Miriam and she learned a lot through trial and error but then later went on to get formal education as a nutritionist and now is one of the leading experts in ketogenic diet. So with that intro, Miriam, I'd love to welcome you to today's show and thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you, Deborah.
0: I'm really happy to be able to meet with you. This is uh Certainly a topic I, I, I never get tired of talking about.
1: Well, you know, as I, I, I wanted to, um, you know, do justice to my description of what happened with your son, Rafi, I know I've talked to you in the past, and I know what a turning point that was for you. But um, I know that you actually were, uh, became interested in using the ketogenic diet with him when traditional therapies failed and he was having actually uh, worse outcomes on traditional therapy and worsening symptoms. And I I want to have you talk about that a little bit because I think that that's kind of the shortcoming of traditional treatments. Sometimes they're offered, but sometimes the outcomes aren't aren't good or, or therapeutic and sometimes you can deteriorate with them
0: oh you bet um especially uh with brain cancer um my son was 4 years old when he when we found out he had this tumor and it was the size of an orange in a 4 year old's head so you could just imagine how Devastating that is. Oh, can't imagine. Kids are just so good at compensation that um, there was just no no way. There had been some symptoms, and we'd taken him to the doctor, eye doctor, and you know what's going on here. And it's like, oh well, uh, it looks like attachment disorder. Well, it wasn't attachment disorder. It was, in fact, it was a a brain tumor. So uh, you're you're right. Uh, The therapies failed. The therapy that was uh, given to him was the best one that they have for standard of care, gold standard for his type of tumor. And it did absolutely nothing. In fact, the the tumor grew through the treatment. And the treatment was 54 weeks. So it's 14 months, actually, of weekly chemotherapy with just a few breaks after every every few rounds of this. And um, so 14 months of this. We thought we were okay. We thought that things were okay, and then um, three months later, he had his first uh, post-treatment uh, MRI, and it was lit up like a Christmas tree. So now we're left scrambling. What do we do after the standard care fails? And the answer was, we don't know. Here's here's you know seven different responses from. Uh, well, let me back up a second. I sent the same little paragraph of what should we do next to all 12 members of the Brain Tumor Consortium, Pediatric Brain Tumor Consortium, seven people uh, gave me the courtesy of a reply. And out of those seven, there were six different opinions of what should be done, Mm -hmm. everywhere from, from let them go, to kind of the most aggressive thing that could be done. So uh, so yeah, we opted for the most aggressive thing, which was uh, surgery and it helped to arrest the, develop- the progression of the tumor in one area in the uh, thalamus, but it did a lot of damage and it did nothing to slow down what was going on in the hypothalamus, which was uh, also affecting his vision and mm-hmm. uh, his, uh, all of his uh, pituitary hormones. So we went, we moved to a clinical trial from there, and, the, and we knew that this was not working. It was supposed to be nine months, and then if it was working, it would continue. But we knew halfway it wasn't working. He was hospitalized for a placement of a shunt for hydrocephalus, and we could tell from the MRI. But uh, they didn't want to like stop the trial. They didn't. They were still recruiting numbers because it's a clinical trial. So, uh, but in the meantime, I'm desperately looking for something, and that's when I came across Dr. Seyfried's work. So, yeah, I mean, it became a question, Deborah, of not um, if, if we should do it. It was more like, why shouldn't we do this? And no one had an answer of why we shouldn't do it. I mean, a clinically relevant one, like, oh, it, you know, then he wouldn't be getting the nutrients he needed or, you know, something, anything, side effects will be terrible, nothing. It was just, well, it's not going to work. There's no evidence for it. Uh, you know, diet doesn't matter, eat what you want. So um, that's not enough to keep us from trying. And honestly, I expected a little bit of a response. I was hoping for a little bit of a response, and we just we were blown away by what we saw at three months.
1: Well, you know, that's really interesting because I experienced this not only in the area of nutrition and, and more specifically what you're talking about with the ketogenic diet as a nurse and somebody who spent most of my career in traditional medicine. And what most people don't know is that doctors are trained in a certain way. They have a certain way of looking at things and they can be, they sometimes are dismissive of anything that's different, not because they've researched it and they're making basically an informed critical decision, they are just dismissing it because it's not in their frame of reference. And we put so much stock in what doctors say that I think that's really important to keep in mind that even if your doctor, like in this case, like, oh, it's not going to do anything. Well, how do you know it's not going to do anything? And obviously they were wrong because it did a lot. You had him for several, I I know that uh, you eventually lost him, but you had him for several years years. at a good quality of life.
0: Yes, yep. Six years. And yeah. uh, if we had gone along, so actually that's what he said. You talk about uh, being dismissive. Uh, you say this is, it's, it's, it's not like a, uh, a well thought out and evidence-based comeback that they have to it. Um, it's really just they're expressing an opinion that they right. have of uh, nutrition. So they have this opinion that food doesn't matter. And, um, you know, I think most of your listeners are going to know that food does matter, even if they're not, Aren't uh, totally on board with ketogenic being the, the way to do it? Uh, they're going to know that that's, it, this has something to do with food. Uh, well, it blows and-
1: me away that. I can still talk to doctors. Literally, I I talked to a doctor recently, we were talking about diabetes and the fact that there's even still discussion about how and if nutrition affects diabetes kind of blows me away. And And this was what the doctor told me, and I quote, I wasn't trained in nutrition in medical school. I know that, but the problem is, is that your patients don't. So when you come out with these opinions of yours, they don't know that you're just Kind of operating on the same general, generic information that everybody else is because you're a doctor. So they think everything that you say is. Founded in something, and he was like no i wasn 't trained that way we, you know we didn 't study nutrition, and this was a relatively young guy, but I, I think that 's a really important distinction for people to know about because the ketogenic diet, from what i 've heard other people talk about, is really controversial. You can get a lot of blowback from doctors who are just like no that 's not healthy there 's no reason for that they, The ketogenic diet seems to be bring out a lot of strong feelings in people
0: i 'll tell you that is going to change it 's already changing as a result of a few passionate doctors who have um, gathered up the information they need to do a clinical trial. And this has been ongoing now for several years and the frustration of, of the most, you know, the passionate doctors uh, has been they haven't been able to recruit the numbers. But you look at their, it's like this little hospital here or this single center here. It's not the multi-center um, with a big you know powerful name behind it. So just recently, there was a trial that started for um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, big name, wow. the big name for newly diagnosed, not salvage care, newly diagnosed endometrial cancer. It's open to women with that diagnosis who are overweight. Because they understand that there's going to be some weight loss with the ketogenic diet, the meals are going to be provided, and then they're going to. So there's that control there. They're not counting on it like you understanding what to do from day day one. You know, along with everything else, you're expected to do when you get a cancer diagnosis, and uh, and then they're going to actually look at tissue to to look at the difference between usual diet and ketogenic diet in terms of you know what the um, what the, what the cells are telling you, what the cancer cells are telling you uh, about, you know, whether they are differentiated or, um, you know, undif- poorly differentiated, you know, so it's, it's going to look at those kinds of characteristics. And then there's one at Cedar sinai in California wow. for um, newly diagnosed glioblastoma is, is included, at least newly diagnosed is included um, and it's along with the standard of care. So what they are recognizing there is that ketogenic diet is not a standalone in in this case and and so it's done alongside their standard of care therapy uh, and and some of the things they're going to be looking at are things I find extremely important in quality of life. right and So even if the diet just extends, I mean if all it were to do is extend life for, For one year, that would be phenomenal because that uh, the standard for brain tumor is if it extends life for two and a half months, they're ecstatic, right? You know, I see a lot longer survival with ketogenic diet done alongside other therapies, but I also see so much better quality of life, definitely, and that's really really important in something as aggressive as brain cancer.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was recently talking to somebody, and this kind of hit me quality of life is kind of a euphemism when it's used by doctors in the cancer world. You know, they pretty much start talking about quality of life when you're at the end of what they have to offer and they don't see a good prognosis and they don't see a good outcome. And then they start talking quality of life, get your affairs in order. Get your affairs in order and here's some palliative care to ease your pain. Right. Quality of life, palliative care. In my opinion, quality of life matters every day, whether you're a cancer patient or not. But the fact is, is that the cancer treatments affect our quality of life. And particularly with many of the women who are listening to this podcast, the area that I do a lot of teaching on are the, are the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, can throw a lot of statistics about the benefit of that, but they seriously impact your quality of life. And doctors don't always consider that in their framework until they're using it interchangeably with terminal and you won't, you know, get your affairs in order.
0: Well, and with, with what you just described, that's medication you can take at home, right? Right. Yeah, and with, with my son, the plan for him with his palliative, they didn't really expect a response, um, was, uh, uh, was uh, infusion chemotherapy, and it would have meant hospitalizations and, and transfusions and infections, and it would have just tied us to the hospital and the clinic. And, right. and as it is, my son had one hospitalization in that six years, and that was uh, because his shunt failed, um, mm-hmm. so they had to go in and, and place a new one. So that was his only hospitalization in that time. So, uh, you know, our quality of life was much improved because we weren't spending one day a week at at a clinic and then spending a few days of uh, mop-up afterwards, which which is what we had done for the first 14 months. And then for a subsequent 12 weeks, and then the surgeries, and then another nine weeks in the clinical trial, that was weekly as well. Um, So, yeah, it's... uh, quality of life is, is huge. And when you're talking about a little guy, he was seven the time we started the diet. And to be able to get him to the age of 13 was just um, remarkable.
1: Okay, so Miriam, uh, when we talk about ketogenic and uh, the as we talked about the quality of life, I think this is what really becomes an important issue in the area of cancer. So just to kind of cover all of our bases, I was wondering if you could just take a few minutes and tell us what therapeutic keto is because I don't uh, think therapeutic keto is the same as as the average keto that everyone's eating because it's very popular and fad diet right now. And I, th- I know you have a very specific way of describing it. And, and second to that, I'm hoping that you can tell us where you see that benefit in terms of breast cancer and cancer specifically. And I know those two kind of go together.
0: Okay. Um, so therapeutic keto diet is, uh, is uh, lower in protein. That, if I were to sum it up in one sentence, I would just say it's lower in protein than a, a standard ketogenic diet. So when you're looking at losing weight, or reversing diabetes, you are looking at a diet basically that uh, switches metabolism from burning uh, primarily glucose to burning primarily fat. Though weight loss happens as a result of that, partly because of the uh, the energy in is less than energy out. That's one of the reasons why but uh, with, uh, with a cancer diet, if you're trying to do this for cancer, or even for Parkinson's disease, it's true for Parkinson's as well, um, you need to control the protein amount as well. Protein in cancer is anabolic. Protein, uh, the amino acids that are in protein, when they hit the bloodstream, they are signaling all the cells that it's time to grow. We have abundant fuel. We have just what you need to grow and to make the enzymes you need, to make the structures within the cells, everything. We got it here, plenty of it, let's grow. Uh, And that's not what you want in cancer. You want austerity. You want this to be belt tightening. You want the signaling to say, hey, we just, all we have is enough for the healthy cells to survive. That's all we got going here. So any of you that are sort of marginal, let's kick you out. So cells go into a cleanup mode. So this stimulates autophagy, and autophagy is that um, self-digesting of cells that are, uh, are less than optimal. Uh, apoptosis is their cell suicide, and then autophagy is this uh, cleanup of the cells. Some of the stuff is recycled, the waste products are eliminated, that's what you want going on in cancer. So by restricting the flow of nutrients with protein as well as glucose, you're changing that signaling. Now, in like diabetes or in, um, uh, even in weight loss, the, one of the big reasons to cut down on glucose, um, carbohydrates, is to lower the glucose level, which in turn will lower insulin and it will reduce insulin's uh, resistance And that leads to better metabolic health. And yes, that's going on in cancer as well. But we have this additional thing with glucose and insulin in cancer. The glucose is used not just as a a kind of a normal fuel in a normal kind of way, a little bit in the cytoplasm, most of it in the mitochondria. It is fermented like crazy in the cytoplasm of the cell, which creates a ton of lactic acid and a lot of this lactic acid is pushed out of the cell and into the microenvironment, acidifies the microenvironment of the cell, and that leads to cancer progression. And when you hear uh, uh, cancer thrives on acidic environments, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether your urine is acid or alkaline. We're talking about what's going on outside of the cancer cell. So there's that. And then the insulin is that signal that, hey guys, we got some fuel coming. We've got glucose coming. We're going to use this insulin to move it into the cells. But it's also telling cells this is a, a time of plenty. So, uh, so, okay, everybody can grow, including new cancer cells. So it's growth, fermentation, prol- proliferation. It's, uh, it's protein signaling in the mTOR pathway and the growth IGF-1 pathway. Um, so it's, that's where it's different. You're not just restoring metabolic health, you're actually interfering with the uh, the signaling to the cancer cells that tells them that they're, they're allowed to be in there still and, and uh, kicking them out.
1: Well, when I hear you talk about this, I know that what you're speaking from is this framework of looking at cancer as a metabolic process. Perfect, but, yeah. Surprisingly, doctors don't view cancer that way and will... Oftentimes, say none of this matters. It doesn't matter what you eat. It, it, you know, your healthy cells use sugar, so you can't. Well, for one thing, for our listeners, I'd like to. This is the nurse and me coming out. Um, When we talk about, I uh, people talk about blood sugar and blood glucose interchangeably, and I think that can be really confusing. When we talk about, they do sort of mean the same thing, but blood glucose is a more accurate term because basically our bodies will take uh, will. Turn into glucose the food that we eat. And what drives that is simple carbohydrates. So when people think about blood sugar and they're just thinking about sweets and sugar and that kind of thing, that is a form of a simple carbohydrate. So are breads, uh, chips, uh, white processed flours. So I just want to make that clarification because I've started to try to get very um, careful in the language that I use referring to blood glucose because people often don't know the foods that are more prone to turn to glucose quickly. Which right. is- you
0: look at, like a sugar, one molecule of simple table sugar um, um, is actually, um, uh, it's called a disaccharide. So it contains a molecule of, of glucose and a, and a molecule of fructose. So in table sugar, you're actually getting um, a, you know, a double dose of poison. Um, but if you look at the starches, they are two molecules of, they are just multiple molecules of, of glucose bond together very loosely. So uh, digestion releases the glucose into the bloodstream. So if you take in zero carbohydrate, you know, zero, let's say you didn't, you know, you didn't have access to it or you chose not to have any carbohydrate at all, your liver is going to make glucose. So that's what, uh, it, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is you can't eliminate glucose. Red blood cells need it. 30% of our brain is reliant. 30% of our brain cells are reliant on, or energy needs, I should say, are reliant on glucose. So um, the, the fact is, though, that if you're ketogenic and, you're, and you're, taking, you're taking in less carbohydrate, less glucose than what your body needs... Then your liver's going to make it, and it, but it's going to make it in a way that just keeps it sort of steady. It's lower and it's much steadier th- than if you're getting it from a carb-containing meal, which like jack up your glucose, and uh, and along with jacking up your glucose, your insulin will rise um, along with that. And that happening multiple times a day is feeding the cancer. It's also you know creating this situation of insulin resistance, which sets people up for cancer and other metabolic diseases, not just cancer. It's a lot of them. Sets us up for neurodegenerative diseases. Sets us up for, you know, what they say, oh, normal aging. You know, this falls apart or that changes. You know, there's a certain amount of uh, activities that are going to change with aging, but there's some that can be headed off if you, you know, start early on to cut back on the amount of carbohydrate you take in.
1: And this is the interesting piece is is that what you 're talking about this this basic metabolic process it is the underlying process for many of the diseases that we're we 're struggling with as a society diabetes, arthritis, uh, neurological diseases, and cancer so those all may feel very different, but really the same metabolic process is going on, which is this high sugar high glycemic diet high insulin and our bodies are our bodies are amazing at adapting but unfortunately it can adapt in a less healthy way which is to become insulin resistant uh-huh. setting you up or it can adapt in a more healthy way which is what you're talking about I know you can't speak for all of them but I've got to bring it up. You know, you know, doctors are really dismissive of this. They'll tell patients diets don't matter. You know, what you eat doesn't matter. Eat whatever yeah, you can tolerate. Diet
0: doesn't matter is a green light. If you hear that, then you know, your doctor doesn't care what you eat. So then it becomes your choice. So you get to choose. So instead of it being a limiting thing, instead of being crushed by the fact that your doctor says diet doesn't matter, understand that, that in this department, you're smarter than your doctor. And you, you know, you've done the ho- You've done your homework. You know more nutrition by l- looking at a few websites online than doctors are gonna uh, are 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 gonna get out of their medical school training. It just doesn't happen, like you said. Um, so it, you know they're they're very well schooled in some areas and very deficient in others. So when it comes to like my personal health and my nutrition, I. Uh, you know i I have my own set of guidelines which are validated, they're they're evidence based, validated. They're just not the guidelines that that we're using as a country. And unfortunately, that's why we're seeing the rates of uh, of ob- obesity, diabetes. The you know metabolic diseases you know a lot of these inflammatory diseases are uh, relate back to insulin resistance the, and the diseases the de- neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's they have a root in uh, the diet they they're also it's it's never that simple but but this insulin resistance and this problem we have with glucose is at the base it's at the it's at the base it's at the core of all of these diseases so you treat that you improve metabolic health system-wide.
1: Right. You know, and, and I said, if there's, if there's something that will generate a lot of opinions from people and doctors and medical people, it's ketogenic. I've, I just read a thing this morning about a court mandating that, the parents had to feed their child 130 grams of carbohydrates a day and the child was type 1 diabetic. There, I mean, this is a really emotional topic for a lot of people. So I really want to, having said that, really want to come back to what you're saying, which is the there's a big difference between the therapeutic application of this diet in in disease management, and, and in this case we're talking about cancer, and the popular ketogenic diet that everyone seems to be jumping on oh yeah
0: i'll tell you this ce- the celebrities that have gotten on board with it so you hear oh kim kardashian this and you know halle berry that that's all you know wonderful that gets the word out there but uh, you know i, I get these al- alerts pushed to me on different on uh, you know ketogenic diet I, I have alerts set to read this and I will read the most outrageous stuff coming out of uh, uninformed people who are supportive of keto, you know, these uh, online, you know, web bloggers or whatever that's supportive of keto, but they, they don't really understand it. And so there's a lot of misinformation out there. So there's a, you know, I want to note for people a couple of really good vetted sources. In general, if you look at uh, for diabetes and um, obesity, you look at what Virta Health, V as in Victor, I-R-T-A, Virta Health is doing. And they have a great blog and everything on their blog is sound for the purposes of diabetes and weight control. Um, And then you look at diet doctor, again, mostly diabetes and weight control. Um, There's there's not a whole lot out there that addresses the neurodegenerative diseases because the science isn't really there yet. People are afraid to address cancer. Because uh, if you're a medical professional and you start saying that, oh, hey, yeah, ketogenic diet for cancer, yeah. You are uh, a pariah in your oncology community. Absolutely. Um, so that's why I'm just really happy that these uh, the doctors at like yeah, Memorial Sloan Kettering have come out and, and stood up for this. And interesting story there, Deborah. Uh, I had somebody that I didn't even know, not a client of mine, email me to tell me that she was a patient. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, she was uh, in the uh, infusion room getting an, an infusion for her for her cancer, and she asked the doctor because um, she had heard about ketogenic diet. She asked the doctor, "What you know? What do you think of this ketogenic diet for cancer?" And the doctor said, "This is a Memorial Sloan Kettering doctor." And he says, "You know, you're the fourth person who's asked me that today, and I don't really know much about it, but I guess I'm going to find out." Wow. And that's because within Memorial Sloan Kettering, there's, there's some of the doctors. So now there's a community of doctors and you don't have to be a pariah if you acknowledge the fact that maybe this diet, um, maybe this diet is safe and possibly even effective. You know, we'll put out on the limb there. Uh, so, you know, the, the word's going to get out. Uh, this isn't going away. Ketogenic diet for metabolic disease is not going away.
1: That's interesting uh, that you say that the doctor responded that way. Yeah. Because one of the key things that I teach listeners and my clients as well is I have complete respect for a doctor or for anybody who can say, "Hey, I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll get back to out. you."
0: Yeah, that was
1: amazing, and she was so excited by that she wanted to tell me, even though she didn't know me. Right, but doctors don't tend to do that. I, I you know, doctors kind of feel, I've heard this from doctors that I've worked with, that they feel they have to present a certain image and 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 they might be seen as less of an authority if they said they didn't know. So a lot of times they'll come out with these blanket statements, oh, no alternative treatments, no diet, no this, no that, no supplements, not because they know, but because they're not going to lose face by saying that they don't. So what respect I have for yes. a doctor who can say, well, I've heard it enough that maybe I need to go back and do some teaching for myself. And if they did that, and then came back and said, well, I still, you know, I'm not supporting it. That's a very different statement to say, I've researched it and don't support it. Then no, just a blanket, no. Those are two different things. And I think that as patients, I think sometimes don't know that we can challenge our doctors. Like, have you studied this? Do you know anything about this? What is your experience in studying this? Instead of just taking blanket statements from them. And that's one one key piece that I really emphasize in terms of empowering people to be a partnership in this process, to be a partner in this process. Because when you get cancer, you don't have the luxury of just saying, well, the doctor told me to do it or told me not to do it. So that's what I did. Because this is your life on the line. You need to be engaged.
0: Right. You need to be on on the team. And I really, I'm a big at, I I, uh, did a TED talk, a TEDx talk in Sedona in October. That's online uh, as a YouTube video. And uh, it's uh, 18 minutes of advocacy, you know, advocating for a therapeutic ketogenic diet. And, you know, for that audience, because uh, there were people there that had never had never really, uh, they might have heard the term, you know, like you said, used with celebrities, but they didn't really know what it was about. So I was asked to speak to that. It was, uh, so what is it? What I said was, it is a very low carbohydrate, sufficient protein, high fat diet. And it's meant to be a therapeutic adjunct to either standard care therapy or an alternative plan. And, you know, then the next step, of course, is, well, what does it look like? So when I do presentations I have pictures of, of actual meals, it looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this. Have you all eaten a meal like this before? And it's, it's not a foreign thing. It's all foods that we've eaten. If you think about putting salmon on a plate with some asparagus and, and some, you know, uh, uh, some mayonnaise with some snipped herb in it, make it a good quality mayonnaise, like an avocado mayonnaise with some uh, herbs snipped into it. So there's your keto meal. It's, this is not exotic. You don't need an exotic set of foods. It's foods you're going to find in the supermarket. Some of the specialty things like avocado mayo, um, you're going to need to dig a little deeper for. But uh, you know, when people ask about, about my son, I mean, we did not do a high quality diet. I did not know enough of, about it. I was following the, the protocol that they used for kids on the diet for epilepsy and they paid no attention to food quality at all. So I would send my son to school with like uh, sliced ham with cream cheese roll-ups so that was a, a very a keto um, meal so yeah you can do meat roll-ups which you can do them in a lot healthier way than than we did but the point is things didn't have to be perfect it didn't have to be all organic goodness to be effective because right. the, the thing that's making the impact here is just cutting down on the carbohydrates and switching the body from burning glucose to primarily burning glucose to primarily Uh, burning
1: fats. And one of the things that that I know you emphasize in your book, and you've talked about it here is, you know, for anybody who think I think anytime you mention keto, and perhaps people's first experience, they think about Atkins. And that was not uh, it was it was a ketogenic diet and very effective for weight loss, it really doesn't do much for looking at quality of food. And he That is what most people, that's what most doctors reference. That's the only thing that they know about keto sometimes is that, oh, that that was that crazy Atkins die. Yeah. As a
0: matter of fact, when I first broached the topic with uh, my son's oncologist, his specialty oncologist, the Big Shot, I I said ketogenic diet. He just like rolled his eyes and said it wasn't going to work. And then he gets like his little high powered colleague on the phone. And what that guy said to me was, the, uh, you know, the Atkins diet is for fat people stick to the plan. I never said Atkins, I said ketogenic. Right. And he said, stick to the plan. The plan was palliative care until my son died. Right. So it's, it's like,
1: no, which was coming oh, soon for us. Right, right. Well, um, it, and yeah. just so people know is, is that Um, I I know because I was a pediatric ICU nurse for much of my career, the the ketogenic diet is not new. It's been around for decades. I remember being at Stanford, I think it was about 30 years ago. I worked at Packard Children's Hospital. They do a lot with kids who have intractable seizures, and I re, I truly do remember the day they were like they pulled it out. They're like, we're doing this ketogenic diet, which you I think was developed in the 1920s. You in know, but well, it,
0: in the 1920s at the Mayo Clinic, right. Russell Wilder coined it a ketogenic diet. He he figured it out. So this is a diet that's been used for pediatric safely used for pediatric epilepsy, like you said, intractable epilepsy for almost a century. And so when it comes to using it for children, for my son, you know, I'm not going to blanket say every child with cancer should be on this diet. But for my son and his brain cancer, it was the absolute perfect thing to do.
1: And I know that you participate in a lot of conferences. The other thing that I think um, in the whole medical world is, is thrown around pretty loosely is, oh, well, it's not scientifically proven. What doctors use to be, what they reference when they talk about the studies is kind of an esoteric gold standard that doesn't apply to much of what they do either. They, they have uh, protocols, but I think anybody can relate to the fact that they use treatments, medications for diagnosis and treatment that has nothing to do with the protocol that was developed from the original study. of of medications this comes up all the time with pharmaceuticals off-label use is what they call it. Well, it may have right. been studied in a certain area, but they're now using it for ten other things that haven't been proven. So that's kind of a red herring. But I know that doctors will say this isn't this isn't proven, this isn't studied. And I know that you actually present it at scientific conferences, and you actually do a lot of education of practitioners and consumers around the therapeutic use of the ketogenic diet. We were right. just talking about one that um, is called the Metabolic Health Summit that that uh, is Actually, a conference you're going to be involved in that really looks at the scientific information we have supporting this diet. So this is not just some bad thing that's come out of that's that's surfaced at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of valid practitioners who are studying and talking and going to conferences and sharing this information, and you're one of those people. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. When you're talking about what you're talking about is uh, doctors saying that that it hasn't uh, reached the level of evidence to. Support a change in protocol. So what they're talking about there are the level of evidence in, um, in oncology is um, randomized double-blinded trials of uh, pharmaceuticals. And that's where they take like a, a group of people... Uh, and they randomly assign them to either the treatment group or placebo group. That, that's like, a, I'm giving one example. There's other ways of doing this. And then they compare the results from, you know, they try to match them as, as completely like for age and for gender and some other, you know, body weight at times. And they try to match them up stage and grade of the cancer and then compare the outcomes. And if the outcomes with the drug are better than the outcomes uh, from the usual care, uh, then or the placebo in the usual care, then then they've uh, provided some evidence. So so that's the standard that they're using, and that's really hard to do with a diet study for a couple of reasons. One, no pharmaceutical company is going to sponsor that, and these clinical trials cost millions by the time they bring a drug to market, it can be a billion. So, uh, so that, you know, that's not going to happen because there's no profit in, in doing this as a, as a diet. Um, So we have to rely on, on, um, on very passionate people gathering the funding, as one guy put it, one researcher put it, you know, he feels like at times he's out on the street corner with a tin cup, trying to get the money to fund, you know, a, a trial. So you have these different levels of evidence and, and, you know, they start with cell studies and then, uh, if those look promising, they can move to like a mouse model. And, uh, and then, you know, if there's enough of those and combined with some case studies, which are like individual cases that look good and describe protocols. And then they move to case series, which are like six, eight, ten people. that, And they all had maybe a little bit different protocol, but here is the information on that. So that's building the levels of evidence up to using the human trials, and like I said, if you go to, uh, you look at clinicaltrials.gov, you can see some of these approved trials that are recruiting participants for diet therapy used alongside standard of care. That's what is really gonna move this, you know, this is, that's what's really gonna move the needle, that plus the fact that there's so much information available about how to do a ketogenic diet that even without a trial, you can go ahead and and do a ketogenic diet. I say you've got to be careful about this. I've written extensively about the what I call the relative contraindications in my book. So they aren't just the medical things. It's it's like what kind of support do you have?
1: Um, you know how how old are you? How able are you to get you know the materials that you need? So basically, what you're saying, Miriam, is is if we applied that to everything, probably 90% of the medical treatments we become used to having access to aren't based in clinical studies or or they're based on
0: so little anything you look at um to give one example the drug opdivo you listen to the commercial on tv and it says the chance to live longer opdivo is like two and a half months of living longer and yet that's not what they're showing in the advertising it's like happy couples connecting with one another connecting with their grandchildren you know, but, uh, you know, in reality, that, uh, that small window of time for the cost and the quality of life, let's find another way to get that and more. And I honestly believe that diet, ketogenic diet, therapeutic ketogenic diet is one way to get a lot more than that two months of, th- of time that you're going to get with Opdevo.
1: Well, one of the guests that I interviewed, um, Ellen Jacobs, we were actually talking about this. Where uh, this is one of this comes up a lot in in cancer treatment, and and this is a little bit of education for our audience. But I read a study recently. It was an informal study. The person was saying that seventy five percent of people who undergo the standard of care, which is a a loaded phrase in and of itself. So, chemo, radiation, and surgery, particularly they were talking about chemo, don't realize that doctors don't necessarily give you that thinking they're going to cure you. They're trying to manage the disease, but they will not talk about cure. So, people are undergoing these treatments, terrified, of course, with a cancer diagnosis, thinking I've got to take this, but th- it's not going to cure you. And and so you really have to get into the weeds about asking about side effects, quality of life, what we've been talking about, quality of life matters long before your terminal. And I think that these are in, important things. And and I think that that's the beauty of, of what we're talking about with the ketogenic diet, is that one of the things that applies to anybody who goes on any diet, I don't care what the diet is, is that they experience—they're—they're they're afraid they're going to experience deprivation. I had a woman recently say to me, "Well, I'm not going to." She was in treatment, and she's like, "I don't want to have all my favorite foods taken away from me." Well, the beauty of a ketogenic diet is—is is I think that the overall experience of people who are eating it is that they have the least amount of deprivation as possible, because you get to eat really savory, nourishing, yummy food, like you get to eat butter, you know, you can have real butter on your asparagus. And
0: and if like, if bread is your downfall, or ice cream is your downfall, there are substitutes for just about every, you know, unhealthy food that you can come up with, or I could, should say, non keto food you can come up with, and you've got, you know, an alternative in the keto world. So uh, you know, you okay? Can't can't go with the mashed potatoes? How about some mashed cauliflower? You can. Right. It doesn't taste exactly like potato, but you can sure get the consistency right. And sometimes it's things like texture that um, make the difference. And when people say, "Oh, it's a boring diet," it's there's not enough variety. It's like, well, no. You you get the variety from the spices that you use, the herbs that you do use, the cooking methods. Like you can rice cauliflower. You can use cauliflower as a pizza crust. You can mash it, um, you can roast it in the oven. you can put it in a you know in a cooker, a, a slow cooker.
1: I've looked at some of the recipes in your book. You can do a lot with um, just in terms of uh, you have a muffin recipe in your book that uh-huh. you can do in the microwave. you can make i mean I think it's easier now to do this diet than probably ever before because uh, what you're trying to do is get rid of like the white flower kind of things but you can do a lot with almond flowers with nut flowers with different things that are available to us that that maybe weren't 10 years ago so i think in many ways it's easier now to do this without that sense of deprivation
0: right and and also you know i find that with uh, people with cancer cancer is a real motivator for change And so even if people have tried like an Atkins type diet for weight loss and maybe they were successful, but went back to their old uh, eating habits, I don't see that, at least with the people I work with personally, I don't see that happening as often as it does in the, um, you know, in that kind of unsupervised, you know, world of keto out there. You know, that Virta Health that I mentioned before, there's this a uh, medically monitored ketogenic diet, but the whole thing is delivered, the whole platform is online. So, uh, you know, you've got that going for it. Well, I want to go back to one thing that you said earlier about people thinking um, that, that their cancer treatment is going to be curative. I can't even begin to tell you how distressing it is for me to hear somebody say, you know, talking about a cancer. Well, I went for my checkup and the doctor said I'm cancer-free. Uh. If that doctor really said that they're cancer-free, that's malpractice. Right. That's, that's telling somebody, you know, you can't tell if somebody's cancer-free or not. All you can say if you've treated cancer like a breast cancer, all you can say is there's no evidence of disease. Right. And that is not the same as being cancer-free and so many people just don't don't understand that it's not their fault that they don't understand it it's because the way it's presented is uh, it uh, the you know 5 year survival rate oh great you're a 5 year survivor well what happens at year 6 and year 7 i mean i don't want to bum people out with this but you know that you know, you know that cancer can come roaring back at 7 8 10 12 years so uh, you know people have to stay vigilant this is you know this is not just a diet that you that you do uh, for a month or two and then you go back to doing what you were doing before or you're just gonna have the you know the, uh, the same outcome as somebody who, who you know, really didn't make any of those kinds of changes. I'm not saying you have to be the, the, as rigorous as you are. In fact, when people get into the swing of this and they get it kind of dialed in, they, they just they drop into a rhythm and a routine with it. That is livable for for a lifetime, and it there's no more, and then and then you look around and you go I can't believe how the rest of the world eats, and you know. Right, it, right. In Some ways it's hard not to feel that way about. Oh my God! As a matter of fact, my son, this is a uh, this is a true story. We we had we were traveling. We go into a McDonald's to get a cup of coffee, and to use the restroom. So we're walking by this table to get into the restroom. And there's a mom sitting there with her little baby, probably about 9, 10 months old, feeding the baby French fries. And my son says very loudly, Mom, that lady must not love her baby. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, my God. She loves your baby very much. She just doesn't know that French fries aren't a good food for her baby.
1: Wow.
0: But yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, you know, that was him looking at that and, and changing the, what we tell ourselves about love and food and nourishment and layers of love brownie. You know, layers of love brownie is, a, you know, I, I have a slide in my presentation. It's like, look, layers of love brownie is about the same as this high-fat chow that's high in carbohydrate that they feed this mouse to make it sick and obese. And then they can say high-fat diets are bad for us. High-fat is not a ketogenic diet. That's right. two separate things. And like when you, you said in the beginning about um, separating out therapeutic ketogenic diet. You know the, the one of the biggest mistakes is people looking at this uh, research that says high fat diets are bad for us. Well, high fat diets are if they're forty five percent fat and thirty percent sugar, right? They're bad for us, right? But if they're seventy percent fat and you know five or ten percent carbohydrate and the uh, rest some healthy protein in there, um, you know that's that's a benefit to people. That's not a um, you know that's not an
1: unhealthy diet well i find it amazing particularly in the area of cancer you know doctors saying no you know if you're losing weight no you need to gain weight so eat whatever well gaining fat is not I mean, healthy yeah,
0: that's what you're doing but
1: yeah. if eating a diet where you're maintaining or gaining lean muscle mass is actually healthy so that that once again is just like this this red herring it's like it's not how much you weigh we all have a Composition of muscle, fat, and water, and the organs in our body. You don't necessarily want to gain more fat. That's not metabolically beneficial to you. And it's just a really simple, sim- simplified way of, of looking at it.
0: This is what I tell my clients. You could be, you know, you could be talking to my clients right now when, like, the spouse will say, "Well, that's I just had one talk to one today. It's like her ideal weight is different um, than what she perceives it to be because it's like, oh, don't want to lose any weight." And it's like, well, that weight that you have above and beyond your, you know, what you need for lean body mass is not a benefit to you at all. As right. a matter of fact, it's keeping you uh, insulin resistant. It's pumping out fats. With the adipocytes uh, pump out, uh, you know, in that in that mass, they they act as an endocrine organ, and one of the the um, hormones they produce is estrogen. Estrogen, and right? Estrogen sensitive cancer. Why in the world would you want to be pumping out? estrogen
1: they want to give you a drug with horrible side effects to to treat that estrogen but or to block that estrogen but they don't want you to do it by actually losing the fat cells which is where the estrogen is produced but right. willing to prescribe a toxic therapy that a lot of women can't tolerate so one of the things i'd like to give our listeners listening to all of this and i know we've kind of gotten in and out of more of more geeky kind of stuff, but I really want to talk about your book for a minute, Keto for Cancer, because to tell you the truth, I was I'm not a big fan of diets because I have uh, dealt with weight issues my entire life, and I just think that diets are just a perpetual way of beating ourselves up, and I was not a big fan of uh, ketogenic because my understanding of ketogenic was Atkins and I just feel like it's like we all know how to lose weight we've all been on a million diets we know how to lose weight we don't know how to keep it off so I'm not I I don't tend to just prescribe diets but I want to say that I read your book Keto for Cancer and I want to say a couple of things about it as somebody reading it I thought it was beautifully written in terms of giving enough of this science and understanding of our bodies that made it really clear that like, wow, this is something I need to like re-examine because this is important to know. But it wasn't so technical that I felt like I was reading a textbook, which I think would turn a lot of people off. I think you just really blended that really well, that it's it's enough that you can have an informed conversation about the principles that you're talking about. And yet you don't have to feel like you have to have a PhD to understand it. So the other thing I want to bring to people is that if there is anything that we, I think that we need to start talking about to revolutionize this discussion with our doctors and medical teams is that cancer doesn't just come out of anywhere. It doesn't just spontaneously combust. It's, it's the end product of a disordered metabolic process that sometimes has gone on for 10 to 15 years. Regardless of whether you ever choose to embrace a ketogenic diet, getting that piece that our nutrition and what we're eating has an effect on our metabolism prior to and during and after cancer, I think that to me, that's a no brainer. And I don't understand why, why, we, why there's so much resistance to this. But I believe that all of our listeners would benefit by looking at your book. It's, it, I think it's digestible. I think it's accessible. I think it makes, makes this whole thing just seem to make so much sense that you'd be able to have an informed conversation with your doctor even if they don't support it or it doesn't have to be your doctor as you said if he doesn't if he doesn't think what you eat matters then who cares then it doesn't matter you can eat whatever you want which means that you could follow whatever diet you want
0: right you get to choose between potato chips and, you know, in a, in an avocado. So
1: You know, and that's the thing. I, as I said, I think that the ketogenic diet, in many ways, you're going to feel less deprived than you do on other things. You get to eat avocado. You get to eat good, healthy fats. You know, you get to eat butter. You get to eat foods that, that really satisfy our sense of savory.
0: Oh, and, and it's not of, just and calories. Part of the education in, in ketogenic diet to help people be able to do this long term has to do with. With, like, socializing, you know, how do you do this in a social setting? How do you do it in the how, how do you do it? You know, people on my uh, intake uh, form that I, that I use, I ask about how many times they dine out. And uh, they'll say, oh, I used to, you know, go out three times a, a week with friends, but I guess I won't be able to do that anymore. And it's like, no way, you can do that. I'm just going to teach you how to do it. So that, you, you know, you're supporting your own health and even modeling for them what a better
1: plan would be. Right. So if, uh, aside from your book, which I, I do uh, recommend for everyone, once again, that's Keto for Cancer, what are, can you recommend some other resources for people who might be interested in starting a ketogenic diet? Because I think that initial phase of where do I start can be overwhelming. You, you mentioned a couple. There's a
0: book called The Ketogenic Kitchen, and that was written by two cancer survivors. Uh, one is a breast cancer survivor and the other uh, ocular melanoma. It's a cookbook with some cooking tips in it too, keto cooking tips that are in it. And so there's a little bit of something for everyone because there's uh, uh, Dominique Kemp's low-carb recipes, um, which are, you know, in a lot of ways, they're more family-friendly. But if you need to tighten it up, you've got Patricia Daly's more rigorous ketogenic diet. And I have to point out with her meal plan, she starts out, she does not a gradual ease-in, which I also recommend for people. You know, I, I, uh, but, uh, it starts at like 45 grams of carb and by the end of the week by cutting down five grams at a time, you're sort of more ketogenic at that point. So that's a, that's a good one because it actually offers meal plans and breakdowns. A lot of the cookbooks that are out there, they're okay later on when you understand that you're going to need to modify them to lower the protein. Uh, that's the biggest difference I see. I started our talk today with that and you know, we close out with that too. The, the biggest difference between the weight loss programs is the amount of protein. And, you know, they say, uh, you'll, you'll, hear in the, you'll hear it, you'll read it, um, that people say the keto sticks, the urine test strips don't work after the first month or so. But if your protein is low, those things will work forever. If your protein is That'll low, you will be able to detect ketones in your urine long-term it's so it's a great screening tool and it's inexpensive and it's Um, non-invasive you know I like people to use a combination of tools in the beginning but I always kind of move them towards the the easiest thing to do as you go on in time as you get this dialed in
1: well I'm so glad that you brought this up again because I think that's the common thing like I can eat however much protein I want and it's like that is not what a therapeutic keto is it's high good quality fat Low carbohydrates, which generally uh, uh, a 20 is the cutoff, but 20 20 to 25 is a good average. And um, and a moderate amount of protein, but you're also restricting protein because protein can be converted to glucose in excess. Not only that, but it drives those cancer progression pathways. It signals
0: the cells that, whoa, we got plenty of, of, of nutrition going on here. We can grow, we can multiply all cells. Here, everybody share.
1: Right, right really important distinction. So in closing, and I love talking to you, and boy, I, I can think of like yeah. many, many other things I want to talk to you about, so i have to have you back. But um, I do know that that uh, you just uh, finished a speaking engagement, but one of the ways that you get this information out to people in addition to your book is that you are a speaker, so people will see your name at, at different uh, ketogenic conferences. And we did talk about the Metabolic Health Summit that's going to be coming next year. That's are there it. Other ways that other places people might be seeing you in the near future. Well, the uh, the the one that I would really like people to know
0: about is the um, Low Carb USA. Uh, this summer, San Diego, um, late July. I don't have the exact dates in front of me. That's a great conference. That's a wonderful community of people. It's a mix of uh, professionals and just people that are living in the low carb world and. Um, the, the talks are great and informal, and the public is invited to participate by asking questions. You know, a lot of the scientific conferences are very intimidating um, for somebody without a science background to get up and even ask a question. But these questions, all questions are welcome. So that's a great one, and I'm, and I'm planning on doing an educational, couple of educational things prior to the start of the conference. And um, I'll be posting those soon, within the next few weeks, um, on my Facebook page, Miriam Calamian, and also through my Twitter, Dietary Therapy. Um, so I'll get the word out on those. And I'll also put it on my my website. But I'll tell you, I am so stretched in right now. It's really, it's hard to pull it all together to get me right. the word out. So if you right. can get the word out, that would be great.
1: Oh, definitely. And let me know. And I will have, I, I certainly will have all of this in our show notes. But as those... Um, uh, educational pieces come up. I will certainly feature them on my website so that people have access to them because I really do. You know, the, the, the other thing that I just want to say in closing is that when you're looking at nutrition or supplements or integrative practices, that there isn't going to be a lock and key situation. It's a matter of, of blending the best of what we know about all of these areas. They all play a piece, but I think if it comes back to understanding that this is a metabolic process and supporting the metabolism of your body to be in a healthy pathway as opposed to a cancer-producing pathway, it makes sense that all of these things have a very vital role. And it's not the same as take a pill and this will go away, which is what we think is going to happen in traditional medicine and usually doesn't anyway. It usually creates other problems, but it's, right. it is it is the fantasy that you can take a pill and, you know, that's what you're going to hear from doctors. Well, this doesn't cure this. Well, what they're doing doesn't cure cancer either. They're just not, you know, that's just not presented. So I really think that anybody who's interested in this, Miriam is a wonderful resource and you can certainly access her. It's obviously something that I believe in and that I work with people around to really understand the nutritional impact. And, And lastly, I think the thing that it does is that I find cancer to be such a disempowering experience that this is one way that you actually can take control of your health. You actually do have choices around what you choose to put in your body. And and this is one way to take back some of that that power that was taken away from us in a diagnosis. And I think that has immense value in and of itself.
0: No, th- thank you for, for all of that. And, and let me add, too, that um, I do work with people one-to-one, and they can find right. out that on my website i i get
1: them up and running and then i direct them to the resources that will keep them running great and and so give us your um give us your website name one more time oh, it's dietarytherapies.com dietarytherapies.com dot com dot com and i will have that also in- just
0: uh google my name miriam Kalami, and he'll come right up right and i'll have that in the show
1: notes okay so thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's always wonderful to have you, and there's just so much more to learn, and I'm so excited that uh, there's going to be ways that we can uh, access your, you and your information in the next few months. It's, uh, no. it's really exciting. Thanks for your support, Deborah. I'd like to just mention a few resources you can find there. Of course, there will always be show notes, and you can actually listen to this recording if you'd like to. I also have a free guide for you to download, which talks about aromatase inhibitors and some of the side effects that are associated with them. It's an information piece for you that I hope you will find helpful. You can also schedule a free consult. And you can get more information about functional medicine and integrative care. With that being said, I'd like to thank everyone who has been following me on the podcast. We've had a really great debut. We've been on a little over two months now and I've had really great responses. But I'd really like to invite you as a listener to send me questions that you might have or if you have an interest in particular areas, please let me know. If nothing else, drop me a line and let me know your thoughts on the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your experiences with the podcast. I've been really lucky to have some really dynamic, leading clinicians and educators in the field, and it's certainly been wonderful to be able to bring that to you. But please let me know what your thoughts are. You can reach me at RadicalHealthRN.com. So thanks so much for joining me today, and until next time, take care.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.